All right, well, welcome, Brian, to be here with you, and uh, we are excited. Uh, it's good to be back. I'm coming off of the leave, as most of you know, and so, yeah, we need to start by bragging about our, our new dog here. So, on the screen should be Isabel Ann, who is now 11 years, 11 years, huh, 11 days old, and uh, she's doing great, Mom is doing great, you know, with the healing process, all that good stuff, and uh, funny enough, who's also not in the room, but was another baby, was a sort of twin, on October 30th is Nathan Ashley, uh, Ashley's son, Ephraim Christopher Conway. So apparently October 30th is a good day to be born. And uh, as we kick off this morning, uh, you know, one thing I was thinking about is when's the last time you had some news that you could not not share? Right? Like something you just had to share. Because this week I've been texting, I've been pulling out phones as I drop my boys off at PBO. I mean, like, I've been talking about my daughters. One of those things in your life. Like, man, I'm going to share with whoever is willing and open to listen. So when's the last time you had those, that sort of news? Because I know the Conways are at the same place, right? As we continue the life and series of Jesus, the life and mission of Jesus, we've been in it for four months now uh, through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to engage a strange story, all right, a strange miracle story, and a couple of stories, and in both cases, they're the type of miracles that if they happen to you, like, you're going to talk about, and you're going to not not share, you've got to share, and yet in both of these stories, there is a twist that Jesus tells people not to. And so it's kind of wild. So if you've got a Bible, go to Mark 7, verses 31 to 37. Uh, we're going to start there. We'll have the words on the screen as well. And then you know, there we are. Just going to have to do that for a sec. That's better. All right. Cool. Verse 31. Here we go. It says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went down through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis, these ten cities outside of Israel. Verse 32, then some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, said to him, Epaphora, which means be opened. If you say the word fast enough, nobody knows you're mispronouncing it, so just let you know. Uh, at this, the man's ears were open, his tongue was loose, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did, the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He, Jesus, has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right, wild story. Uh, we're going to just pause it for a moment. We're going to jump over to Mark 8. So again, if you've got your Bible, verse 22, very similar story. So we're going to look at them together. Here we go. Verse 22, it says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. All right. So let's take these two stories together and check some parallels. Just a few observations for you. There's probably lots to say, but just a few. First, we've got two individuals who have some obviously challenging situations, right? One is deaf and mute, the other is blind. And big cultural differences from now to then, right? So these types of conditions now, they isolate you, right? There's a way in which that they naturally isolate you. But in Jesus' day, it would have been that much worse. 
because they would have been pushed away, probably from the temple in certain ways. Uh, they often would have been, uh, at minimum, prejudiced against and said, look, it must be their parents' sin. Like, the reason they're in this condition, like, their parents must have done something, and they are in the wrong, and so they were born out of sin, and they're born broken people, right? So there have been additional layers of, of guilt and shame that would have been that much more isolated. And yet, they do have some friends, right? And these friends bring these people to Jesus, hoping that he could change their life trajectory. Second big observation is simply that in both cases, Jesus takes the people away from the masses. And uh, I don't exactly know why, but I think Jesus is doing this because he's wanting them to experience dignity and value and worth, right? Jesus was not running like some magic show or a circus or a, hey, if I get a larger crowd, I'll take some alms from them and I'll, I'll, my pocket will get bigger, right? Jesus has no interest in that. And so in this moment, he is instead responding to real people with real needs and, and with a real interaction between just he and them. Uh, he chose in this instant to heal them by themselves. The third is clear that Jesus does some weird stuff, right? Anyone remember back to middle school? Uh, did you ever get a wet willy? Anybody wet willies? Come on, man. Siblings or school riders, right? And it's like you lick your finger and you put it in somebody's ear. Like, it's not fun. Nobody likes a wet willy, right? Fights break out because of wet willies. And so, in the first miracle, Jesus does something so it's not exactly similar enough where he uh, instead touches the dude's tongue. He spits and touches the dude's tongue. And then in the second man, he spits on the man's eyes and lays hands on him. These are strange actions. And uh, I'm not going to attempt to figure out like, why Jesus chooses to do this. I don't know. Uh, but if you remember, and you've been with us in this series for a while, you know that we've seen Jesus speak and calm the sea of Galilee. You know that we've seen an older woman just touch his cloak and Jesus heals her, not even knowing uh, that he healed her until afterwards. We know that Jesus multiplied loaves and fish and thousands. He regularly laid hands on others and he regularly spoke things and stuff would happen. People would get healed. So I don't know why Jesus did this. He had immense power without the wet willy technique, okay? But Jesus uses it anyways. Finally, though, it's this observation that Jesus tells people in both stories. He commands them, don't tell them. Like, don't tell anyone about me. And in the second story, he says, don't even go into that village. Some of the manuscripts, earliest manuscripts have, don't tell the village. So either way, uh, Jesus is commanding you not to do anything. And I think this is really fascinating. And it's not the only instances that this happens. Look at the story right after, in chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say? And Peter answered, the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now we're going to go into the story in depth next week, so all I will say now is that Jesus is testing the pulse of the community, and he asks one of the most profound questions. He asks people, who do people say I am, and who do you say I am? And Peter pipes up with the right answer, Messiah, right? The long-awaited Messiah, the rescuer. It's kind of one of those bingo moments again, Jesus, don't tell them. Right? Like, this does not seem to make sense. Uh, earlier, don't go there, it'll be on the screen, it's back to chapter 3, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the border around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for them to keep the people from crowding him. 
For it healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Again, yeah, here's the key part. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Uh, a strange story, Jesus interacting with these uh, demonic beings, right? So how do you feel about that? But there he is doing that. And what's fascinating about them is they have great theology. Like, they know exactly who Jesus is. Everyone's trying to figure out who Jesus is uh, throughout his life, and the demons have it. They're right on. They know he's the Son of God, and yet Jesus says, no, do not say anything. So what we see, and there are other occasions as well, we have a number of occasions though. Healed individuals told not to tell. Jesus' closest friend at that time is told not to tell. And demonic beings told not to tell. So what is Jesus doing here? Like, did Jesus really want others to be quiet about him? Was he thwarting his own mission? Does Jesus not want us to tell others about him? Now, this phenomenon is regularly known as the messianic secret. Okay, so scholars and theologians would call it that. Uh, and those who are maybe atheists or uh, kind of in opposition to faith, uh, who study the Bible and have great PhDs and such, would argue often that Jesus was confused with his own mission. That he didn't know exactly that he was the Messiah. Now, I, I believe, obviously, that these scholars have missed the point. Instead, I think it's far better to conclude with Mark Strauss. He says this, author of the says, The Messianic secret is better understood as Jesus' attempt to define his Messiahship on his own terms, which means in light of the cross. He does not wish demons to proclaim his identity since they will inevitably distort it. He calls those he heals to silence to temper the messianic fervor of the crowds. And he silences his disciples since they remain ignorant that his messiahship will involve suffering and sacrifice. What Jesus is doing in these moments is key that we wrestle with, right? Like we've been traveling through the series. Lots of people are like, who is Jesus? And he's telling people not to say like, Why does he do that? Jesus is waiting for the right timing. And he's waiting for the right ultimate expression of who he is in his kingdom. Because Jesus' kingdom are not the ways of this world. It's not with power, and it's not with popularity that you receive who Jesus is into your life. It's instead beholding the one who died to make you his beloved. And so on numerous occasions, Jesus would do something outrageous, wild, miraculous, and still tell people, like, hey, it's not the right time. Like, don't tell others yet. And so what do we do with these stories? Right? As, as we engage in this thing, like what's the purpose of them? And how do we as followers, as apprentices of Jesus, uh, engage with them? First, I believe we need to say, hey, here's what the Messianic secret is. It was an attempt for Jesus to minimize uh, kind of the hype, if you will, and to wait for the right expression. And, and it is a temporary before the display of the cross. But it's also that these stories and these moments create tension, they create awe, they create wonder in anyone who's honestly and authentically exploring the person of Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite things I'm doing right now is I'm regularly talking with two of my dearest friends who I grew up with, who I've known 20 years now, uh, because for the first time they're beginning to honestly explore the person of Jesus. Uh, and it's really amazing. And so a few months back, we actually started walking through the Gospel of Mark together. And they would often, as, as they're either texting me or, or talking on FaceTime or whatever, they would say, man, I have a ton of questions about Jesus. Like, hey, so do I. <laughs> I've been following Jesus since I was roughly 11, and I haven't stopped having questions about this Jesus. And so some of these stories create awe and tension and wonder and pondering about who this Jesus is. And I think they're there intentionally to do so. But I also, for us here at CERF, for this spiritual family, we need to make sure 
that we are leaning towards what Strauss concludes, which is the fact that, hey, 2,000 years later, we actually do have hindsight. All those stories where Jesus said, don't tell, they happened before the cross, and here we are after the cross. We can see what he did there, what he accomplished there. We can see his victorious resurrection from the grave. We can see the culmination of why Jesus told them to be quiet. And so what we need to do is to kind of fast forward to some of those last appearances of Jesus. When he dies, when he resurrects, and when he begins appearing to those followers... He says some very different things, very obvious things. He says this at the end of Matthew. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then his last known words in resurrected form is out of Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, my martyrs, where we get that word from, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus leaves his last word saying, you have to go. You must go. You must be my bearers and bringers of this news. And so what I want us to do for the rest of our time, what we're trying to gather to equip and encourage around, is what does it look like to share our faith? Like what does it look like to be a people who are embodying and bringing the message and the presence of, of God's continued activity in the here and now? And, and I really believe this is a need for us, for our spiritual family, to keep leaning into, to keep growing in. Like I believe there's a need for deeper evangelistic fervor from us, for greater passion to share with those who are not yet in relationship with Jesus. And I know that there are barriers. I know that there are barriers at any time we talk about this. A few weeks ago, we were in and around some similar themes. Uh, but right now, it's hard for me not to talk about Isabel. Right? Like, it's hard. How can I not share? Right? My passion, my excitement, my enthusiasm is very high. And I believe in a similar manner. God wants us to grow in enthusiasm, a passion, and a fervor to make Jesus known in the world. And so I feel some pain points that are cultural, and I feel some pain points that are also just like locally contextualized here. So I want to unpack those just real briefly, and I want to talk about and then equip us around some evangelism. So as I unpack the pain points of sharing faith, I lead into Alan Hershey, some of his work, because he says this in his book, Eclipse of God. Martin Buber points out that a solar eclipse is something that concerns the relation of our eyes to the sun rather than a movement or changing of the sun itself. Although an eclipse appears to impact the sun, in fact, it has no influence on it at all. Seen from the perspective of Earth, a solar eclipse is caused by the moon, moving between the Earth and the sun, and therefore blocking all or some of the sun from the Earth's view. Here's the important part. Similarly, an eclipse of God occurs not because God moves away from our sight, but because of objects, ideas, and idols move into our sight. They insert themselves into our viewpoint, obscuring our capacity to view God in all of God's fullness. And so I believe this eclipse metaphor is really instructive for us. It says a lot about our culture. Uh, right now, the fastest moving, uh, fastest growing religious uh, population is uh, the religious nuns, meaning people would say, hey, I have no identification, right? So that's nuns. And it's roughly 23% that continues to grow in our country. Say, hey, I don't have a religious belief or view. And so Hirsch describes our awareness of God is therefore obscured and eclipsed. We find ourselves cut off, listen to this, from the enchanted, theistic, sacramental worldview that has been lost over the last 500 years or so. 
And there's a lot of complex factors, but it's snowballed. Uh, there's ever-present secularism as a dominant worldview that, that eliminates religious expression. There's philosophical atheism that, for the most part, dominates science and the arts the last 120 years. That does not mean there aren't Christian scientists or Christian artists. It does not mean that, but it means that there are beliefs, in, for the most part, allowed science and the arts that have said God should be a part of this picture. Rampant materialism moves people away from God. We need to hear that here in middle, upper class, prairie village area. And the pervasiveness of capitalism is a factor. When people are reduced to an economic unit of consumption, that dehumanizes us. And it makes it hard, again, to connect upward with God. And then, of course, this polarizing political propaganda that we're subject to every day, just to name a few factors that we use. So... More and more, I feel the pain point of people having an eclipsed view of God, right? An eclipsed view of the Son, or the Son of God, if you will. And so I believe there's a deep need in our midst to have men and women of faith who are saying, I'm willing, like I'm willing to share my faith. I'm willing to proclaim that God is active, that he is not distant, that Jesus and his kingdom is breaking onto this earth, and that I get to be a part of that, and that you can too, that you're inviting to participate with God. And to make sure all that wasn't too petty and up there, I'd rather you think of your neighborhood, your work environment, your family and friend networks. Don't you have friends? who are not yet in relationship with Jesus. And so at the, at the least, I would hope that we'd have just a simple pain point around, man, like, I would love to see these people come into the faith and, and the family of God. And so God wants to use us as a part of that plan to go and proclaim Him. This is that summer. So here's what I'd like to be able to do. But the final few moments here is to equip some around this. What does evangelism look like? I know there are these deep barriers, but I, let's keep leaning into this Acts 1A. What does our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, our ends of the earth look like? And so, a couple, few weeks back, I just summarized real fast here. We have been talking about what it means to be a blessing to others, right? If you've been around, sir, you know this demonic device, blessing, simply to, to do that well, to bless others around us. And then we introduced something new called Identify and Gospel. And um, simply, it's that we begin to work through our hurts and struggles. And as we get honest with those, we share those hurts and struggles. And then also share the good news of Jesus amidst them. And, and so the first step, if we're really going to grow in some uh, evangelistic fervor, is the blessing activity of beginning in prayer. Like my hope is that we would all have real, authentic relationships that are, we are at least weekly praying for. Right? Asking God to move. Asking God to open awareness uh, to Jesus. And, and we should long to see that happen. And so the first work is going upward and saying, God, would you show yourself, would you reveal yourself to my friends and family and others that I care about? There have been years and years of prayers that I have been praying on certain people's behalf. And I'll tell you, there are ups and downs in that prayer journey. There are times where I'm just going to like, I'm done. And I'm done praying for that person, right? And so I'm not saying this from some distant place. I'm saying it from a very real life. I've been praying for some people, and I've given up praying for some people, and I'm fighting back for that. So if you've never done this, I would want you to start here. Like grow your heart for people from God by sitting with the Lord and by praying regularly. And if you are already here, keep pressing. Like don't give up. Like keep praying on behalf of that person. You're participating with God, and your heart is becoming more like His for those who, who don't know Him. As we identify and as we gospel, we are not pretending like we have everything together. 
And so that's key, is that we would share out of the struggles, because it's, it's more compelling. Your, your struggles will actually be the bridge to people who maybe aren't sure about God or about faith or about Jesus. And so in doing that, it, it's more realistic. It's more, oh, I can relate to that struggle of, of challenges at work or frustrations in a home life or whatever it is, right? So those struggles are real. And then we're learning to share, here's how Jesus is giving me hope along that struggle. So you don't have to have a lot be alive to share in that way. Now, what I'd like to add on to that, since that was a summary of a few weeks ago, since some of us weren't here, um, but the, the new stuff is I also believe that we need deeper gospel imagination. So I want to give you two of those today, all right? What does it look like, a deeper gospel imagination? Uh, because that will help us and will help others ponder the good news of Jesus. Many of us have heard this storyline, all right? Here's the basic storyline. God's created everything. He's perfect, he's holy, he's good, the creative thing good, and yet we follow him, right? We are sinful, we are separated, we are broken. Jesus came into the world to rescue and to save us and to bring us back into a relationship with him. And finally, when you come to a relationship with Jesus, it's not just like a ticket to heaven, it's actually an invitation to participate in the new creation, right? To begin working to restore all things, to do that with God and with each other. And all of this is very good and true. And this is a crucial starting point for the gospel. We are in need of this deep forgiveness from Jesus and a relationship with God. However, oftentimes this is the only story we've ever been equipped to tell. And uh, the reality is many people are not in a relationship with Jesus are like, I don't care about that. <laughs> like, I don't care. That whole thing, I don't care. And especially if we start from a place, you're a sinner and you need forgiveness from Jesus, it's not usually very compelling, is it? So it still might be very true. Uh, and, and yet, I believe one of our challenges, and again, Hirsch kind of helps to unearth, is we're still sharing a gospel storyline that goes back about 500 years ago. Okay? So Martin Luther, here's this old dude. Looks like an old dude picture, right? But yeah, it's perfect. It's awesome, right? This guy is old, all right? But he's so influential, right? I mean, we're in this room identifying as Protestant Christians in part, in large part, because of some of what God did in and through Martin Luther. Now, here's the thing that you may or may not know about him. Martin Luther, prior to, to how, how the Reformation got started, anyways, Martin Luther was having panic attacks. And he was having panic attacks because, you know, he only had 55 Instagram followers, and he was looking at, like, the kitchen layouts on social media and was, like, really bummed on the fact that he can't afford backsplash, right? And so that's why he's having panic attacks. Okay, clearly not. He was having panic attacks. Because he was so aware of how holy God was and so aware of his own sin. Like he was literally having panic attacks because he couldn't imagine if this God was actually true and real and good like he believed he was, how, how could Martin Luther ever have friendship with God? Like how would God ever allow that? And it was literally producing panic attacks. Think about in Kansas City, how many people do you think are having panic attacks right now because God is so holy and, and, and they're broken and separated from him? How many people in our city, in Prairie Village, are literally having panic attacks? Like, what, five people? I don't know, but it's not many. Right? There might be some, but it's not many. Here's the thing. In, in the Western church, we've been mostly equipped around trying to make people feel bad for their sin. And it's not very effective. Like it was in Martin Luther's day. Why? Because most people had a beginning belief. Of course there's a lot. Like, atheism for the most part almost wasn't really, like, it almost didn't exist. That makes sense? Like, most people had some view of the divine, of God, of multiple gods, of something in that area. And we've been taught to say, hey, make people feel bad for their sin so that they might need Jesus. And it's not super effective. 
That's not even our job. Like Jesus actually says in John 16, if you check it out another time, he says, it's the role of the Holy Spirit to convict people of their sin. It's not our job. So, what does that mean? Does it mean you don't say, apart from Jesus, you can't have a relationship with God? No, we're not trying to cover that up. We believe that God has come to rescue us. It's instead that we need to realize that the gospel has dimensions to it. It has multiple dimensions. And so I want to grow our imagination just for a minute with two of those dimensions so that we can chew on them, ponder them, and help others experience them. And the first is spiritual extended family. We talk about this all the time around here. I believe that one of the most effective ways that we learn how to share our faith is we share our faith as a community where people begin to experience extended family as a more compelling reality than nuclear family alone. Okay, there's a lot to that, because through the gospel, Jesus, is, is, the, the story is that the Father's heartbeat is to even willingly send his one and only Son so that others would become a part of the extended family of God. Now, the nuclear family is certainly the bedrock of society. God even set it up that way. It's huge for human flourishing. I don't want to undermine how important it is that if you're a parent in the room, that you would know that you are called to raise your children well, to love them well, to meet their needs, and to act as the primary disciples of your children's life. That, that is still totally right in it, right? So, so we're not saying that that's not it. But God then designed, uh, he actually, Jesus turns the nuclear family on its head. When he says back to something we, we studied weeks back in the series, who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. He looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and my sister and my brother. And so Jesus points to the fact that extended family is even better or greater than just nuclear alone. And I feel like I can speak to this personally in the sense that, you know, my parents are across, you know, my family is in Southern California. Chris's family is a little bit over two hours away, so we have some interaction, regular interaction, you know, in person with them. But we were, when we moved, we were put in a posture of learning, like, we're going to have to learn how to live family with some other people, right? And it's been beautiful to see even this past week that Emil has been dropped off at her house each week, because, or each night, because of Isabel's birth. It's such a gift, right? It doesn't make sense without extended family. It's been beautiful uh, back uh, in February of this year uh, when we were invited two doors down to our, our neighbor's home when our power went out. And they allowed me and our two crazy boys and my wife to come on over. They've got an awesome daughter. I mean, like, it's wild. And they gave us their master bedroom for two nights. That is beautiful. It's crazy. It was beautiful to gather and to go and pray at the hospital for Piper, if you know the Dickens family around here. We're not happy about those circumstances, but after she had seizures, that people were going and praying, people were going and dropping off meals. Like that is spiritual extended family in action. It's beautiful, it's challenging, but it's beautiful. It's been beautiful to participate with handfuls of others to meet needs of others like Larry and to receive from Larry in relationship, in mutual reciprocity. And it's been a joy to have countless meals around our table with people we know well and people we don't know hardly at all. Like that is the beauty of spiritual extended family. So summarize, one dimension of the good news is that you are so valuable that God would come for you and that through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, you are invited into God's extended spiritual family that begins now and it endures forever. <coughs> that is good news. And you can begin to offer that to others. 
right? You have, if you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have brothers and sisters across the world. You're a part of the family of the living God. You have a Father who is joyful over you, who is texting over you, who is hooting and hollering as you as a new child with Him. That is great news. And spiritual extended family isn't something you offer somebody else. You allow for others to taste and see what that might look like to actually try to live alongside others as messy and broken as it can be at times. Uh, to experience it. And then you're going to have opportunities to share what it looks like to follow Jesus amidst those experiences. So that's one dimension. Another, as we imagine again, our last one for the morning. The gospel brings the deepest satisfaction and contentment for this life and the one to come. Uh, I believe the quest for happiness is, is going on everywhere. Uh, it looks differently. It's certainly contextualized differently in different cultures and different places and all those sorts of things. And there's way too much to summarize around this, but uh, to lead into Tim Keller's a recent work of his Making Sense of God, he outlines four main ways that people in the West in particular attempt to find satisfaction. And so the first is the young. He calls it the young, right? And it's the attempt to find satisfaction in what might be. Like, if I have the right spouse, then I'll be happy. If I have the right job, then I'll be happy. If I have the right amount of wealth, then I will be happy. It's what might be. And so the pursuits of jobs and family and sex and so on become the distractions for not, oftentimes for not dealing with our own discontentment, with our own loneliness and hurt and pains and different things. And so it's a strategy of busyness to cover up the discouragement when often we even achieve those benchmarks that we're searching for, they might bring a little bit of satisfaction, but it's fleeting. And so that begins to move many people towards a second strategy, which is resentful. Right? Over time, we become resentful because contentment isn't happening the way we thought it was supposed to be. The might be's aren't working out. And so often that can lead to blaming. Uh, it can lead to circumstances or people. If this person hadn't done this, then my life would have gone differently. Oftentimes we become victims of our own stuff. Uh, if, uh, if the efforts to the benchmark do work, but again, if it of happiness is not there, there could be a third step. And it's the strategy of the driven. And so this is the most commonly held strategy in, in a secular framework. Why? Because most of the emphasis is on the here and now. Right? It's all about here and now. And so the driven achieve what they're hoping for. They're often the most productive in society in all kinds of ways. And yet, once more, the satisfaction is fleeting. Meaning can often be missing. And so then it becomes a shift to the better or the more. Right? Like, if I had a better spouse, ah, that would fix it. If I had a better job, ooh, that would do it. Right? If I had a better home, a better amount of income, all those sorts of things. Right? It's a shift to the better. And so it's kind of the, the theme of the treadmill, right? Like, let me just pick up the pace on the treadmill, and that will, that will satisfy. I will drive towards that. And yet, on a, on a treadmill, like, you don't move anywhere, right? You just simply have to run faster in order to keep the pace of that moving treadmill. That's the driven. And oftentimes, it leads to exhaustion or overwhelming or burnout. And so finally, the fourth strategy, or the outcome, is despair. Right? This is where you finally begin to say, you know what, no longer you blame others. There must be something wrong with me. Right? And that's a ton of shame. Uh, I, I haven't done well enough. Uh, I haven't attracted the right spouse enough. I haven't been able to reach my career aspirations of what's wrong with me. Does that make sense? And so what does the gospel have to say to all of this? The good news of Jesus is that when you learn to grow your love for God, for your creator, your sustainer, your soul satisfier, what you're finally doing is aligning your heart with its deepest longings. And so the invitation is stop filling with other substitutes.
The Christian view of satisfaction is to learn God, love God supremely. Family, romance, uh, jobs, those are actually good things. I hope you hear that. They're not bad things at all. Uh, they are good things. And yet, when we make them our ultimate thing, that's when we get into trouble. So the Christian view of satisfaction is love God above all those things. And what happens is those things start to fall in place underneath you. Again, the quote killer is don't love anything less. Instead, learn to love God more. And you'll love other things with far more satisfaction. You won't overprotect them. You won't overexpect things from them. You won't be constantly furious with them for not being what you hope for. Don't stifle, this is at the quote here, don't stifle passionate love for anything. Rather, redirect your greatest love towards God by loving Him with your whole heart and loving Him for Himself, not just what He can give you. And then and only then does contentment start to come. Like some of us are struggling with contentment. And my encouragement is identify that. <laughs> identify where the discontentment is, it, is coming from and what that is. And gospel yourself. Right? Bring to bear amidst that discontentment what you think God actually speaks over you and what you, what you think God wants to do in you and through you. Begin to share that with someone. Here's where I'm frustrated. Here's where I'm lacking. Here's where I'm ruined. Here's where I'm dismayed. Here's where I'm bothered right now. But here's what Jesus is showing me. He's showing me that he's taking me on a journey to love him more deeply and slowly I'm finding more satisfaction in him and God alone rather than than in the circumstances. That's when we get kind of flipped upside down. So instead of learning to root myself in the unending love and grace and mercy of an all-encompassing relationship where my restless soul is beginning to find rest in God alone. This is good news. So sir, my hope is that you lean in here with me. And, and the challenge this week is this. It's simple. Pray and ask God every day this week Would you join me. Ask every day for a non-cheesy, non-forced, but intentional opportunity to verbally share the gospel with somebody. Like, would you ask him with me every day this week? Nothing goofy, but an honest, real sharing of what God is up to. Uh, these two, by the way, dimensions of the gospel, they are just two of dozens of dimensions of the gospel. That's where we need our imagination to be increased and for us to learn how to share and embody the good news of Jesus together with others when we live, work, play. Thanks for checking in to the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, check us out online on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or at our website at servecc.org.